begin to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Advent is a season of waiting in expectation. Here we look forward to the coming of Christ in glory as he once came in humility, born a baby in Bethlehem. Here we self-consciously reject the hopes and expectations of the world in favor of more glorious promises to be fulfilled in Christ's appearing. At least that's what Advent is supposed to be. In reality, I suspect it's more often about counting down the days till Christmas and looking forward to some new toy that we have our eyes on and uh, longing for the day off and uh, some extra social life. For you see, the problem is we live in this world where we're very scientifically minded and we know something about the universe and we know something about Um, uh, the vastness of it and we realize that our lives and uh, even this earth and even this galaxy is but a speck a tiny speck in the universe so so even if uh, we believe God exists which we do we probably don't really expect him to interfere in human history We, we certainly don't really expect him to get involved in individual people's lives it just seems beyond the scope of our imagination really. And so I fear Advent becomes simply God talk, where we psychologize and give some spiritual significance to things about which we have no realistic expectation at all when we're listening to the evening news or reading the paper. But that's what makes this text so profound this morning. For here we read of God actually breaking into our world, of saying and doing things in the lives of real people in time and space that we might never have imagined. The text is familiar. Let me read it to you, beginning with verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and we call the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Uh, How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in the sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you've said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to the town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. 
When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your voice reached, uh, of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembered to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Well, who hasn't heard this story? So many things that could be said that have been said about this account. This morning I want us to just uh, reflect on two truths that kind of are woven through the the whole of this account. Um, Last week we heard and we were reminded that God keeps his promises. Well, today we hear even a greater truth, which is our first point, that God's promises took on flesh in Jesus. God's promises took on flesh in Jesus. This uh, story, which is true, is one of the most touching accounts in the Bible. Here's a young Jewish girl named Mary. She lives in a small Galilean town of Nazareth, which is a town of uh, no special interest. There, like many young girls, she looks forward to getting married. Uh, Marriage to a young man named Joseph had already been arranged by her parents. Such arrangements were usually made uh, shortly after puberty in that culture, making Mary perhaps as young as 15, probably no older than 18. There's nothing unusual about this girl until the day the angel of the Lord appears to her. The angel Gabriel, who had appeared to the priest Zechariah in the temple down in Jerusalem, now appears to Mary, a teenager in a remote town. And Gabriel brings a breathtaking announcement. You will be with child who will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus. Well, Mary asked the obvious question, the question more obvious to her than anyone else. How will this be since I am a virgin? Which the angel answered by explaining that her conception would be by the power of the Holy Spirit, for her son was to be virgin-born. As the angel reminded her, nothing is impossible with God. But the point of this story is not to tell us about Mary, though we always wish we knew more about Mary, but to tell us about this son that she was to bear. Matthew explains that this whole event was one enormous fulfillment of God's promises. As Matthew writes, All this took place to fulfill what God had spoken through through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. The point of this account is that all God's promises were about to take on human flesh in Jesus. In this account, there are several things told us about Jesus, each of which represents a whole cluster of promises that now finds its fulfillment in him. For example, according to verse 32, we read that he will be great. Theophilus, to whom this letter was written, the Greek official, um, probably knew something about greatness. He undoubtedly associated with great people. He probably had great wealth. He certainly had great knowledge and, and had perhaps great power. But Theophilus had not seen anything yet until he learned about the greatness of Jesus. For Jesus, whose name means God saves, would come displaying the greatness of the Lord the greatness of his love, the greatness of his mercy, the greatness of his power, the greatness of his patience, the greatness of his sovereign purpose to save his people. You see, all God's promises of greatness take on flesh in Jesus. Later in verse 32, Mary is told that her son would be called son of the Most High. Most High is another term for God. Therefore, verse 35 goes on to explain, so the Holy One to be born will be called Son of of God. Now that's an interesting phrase. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the, the phrase son of God is used in some different ways. The angels are called sons of God. Uh, Israel is sometimes called the son of God. But woven through those same scriptures were references to the fact that God himself was coming. Ezekiel said God himself would come to shepherd his flock. Isaiah promised God's comfort when the announcement was made, here is your God coming. And in, in, in Isaiah 9, the promise, unto us a son is born, and unto us a child is given, identified that child specifically as eternal father and mighty God. So the Bible consistently understands this Jesus to be nothing less than true God, while at the same time true man, son of God, as well as son of man. Therefore, the apostle John explains that the word that was in the beginning with God and was God, that word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And the apostle Paul explains, in him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. You see, all the promises of God's appearing took flesh in Jesus. Well, as the angel goes on talking to Mary, in verses 32 and 33, we learn that Jesus comes to be God's anointed Messiah. In verse 32, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. In other words, all those promises made to David that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever, those promises will be fulfilled in this Jesus. And in verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In other words, all of those promises made to Abraham about his seed being a blessing to the whole world, those promises would find fulfillment in Mary's son, Jesus. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. All the promises of God's Messiah take on flesh in Jesus. In the birth of Jesus, God has done 
what we cannot even imagine. God stepped into human history, stepped into human flesh to fulfill all his promises to save his people. Folks, because we've not yet seen all God's work finished, we easily shuffle it into the world of make-believe or into some spiritual world that's less real than the world in which we really live and work. But Jesus did not come as some ethereal spirit that we try to connect to. Jesus came in a human body. Man, very man, born of Mary. But God, very God, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He came into a world of time and space where he lived and worked, where he sweat and bled, where he hung and died, where his body rose from the dead, an earth from which he ascended into heaven and back to which he will descend on the last day. He's not a figment of the imagination of Christians. He is alive this morning, the God-man at the right hand of the Father. He is the king this morning, having a sovereign rule over all the earth, all nations, all people, all history. And he is working out his plan to save his world. Using those who acknowledge his lordship and overruling those who do not. All God's promises have taken on flesh in Jesus. So today God calls us to respond and live out his promises in the same real world in which he fulfilled them. In this world of ignorance and false worship that's right alongside the true. In this world of darkness and wickedness that seeks to undo the light of righteousness. In this world which prefers death to eternal life. Of course the world thinks God is a mythical idea, a crutch to help the ignorant cope. But we who know Christ know better. For in him we have seen God step into history. We have seen God's eternal promises remembered long after men forgot. We have seen God take on human flesh as Mary's son. God is not far off and detached. He has walked in our shoes. He has suffered our fate. He has died in our place and risen to bring us into his new creation. All God's promises have taken on flesh in Jesus. So how do we respond? Well, our text gives us a model of response. An, an example of Mary. In the face of these overwhelming things, with a faith that dwarfed that of the aged priest Zechariah, Mary simply replied to all of this overwhelming things. I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you've said. Surely this is the paradigm of Christian discipleship here. God promises untold blessings of his grace. But like Mary, it will cost us. The question is whether we will reply as Mary did. I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you've said. This is a lesson we need to learn from this dear little sister of ours, this teenage girl who became the mother of our Lord. In view of all God's overwhelming promises, she simply offered herself to him.
This morning I announced good news to you. All God's promises have taken on flesh in Jesus, but we're called to offer ourselves to God in return, no matter what it costs us. Well, our text goes on beyond the announcement of Jesus' birth, and it talks us about, more about Mary's response and her understanding, which brings us to our second point, that Jesus' coming began God's great reversal. Jesus' coming began God's great reversal. Uh, you know, I've noticed as we reflect on our lives that uh, uh, the, the, the more we understand the big picture, the more sense we can make of the details. Then again, the more we think about the details and, and tie them together, the more we, the more we understand the big, big picture. There's reason for us to reflect and meditate and, 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 and try to understand what's happening in her life. And I think that's what happened with Mary. As she pondered the details of what had been said and what was happening to her, she began to comprehend the big picture a little bit. And as she considered the big picture, the details of her life made a lot more sense. In short, Mary came to understand that God's great reversal was beginning in the appearance of Jesus. After the angel's, angel's announcement, Mary immediately headed off to see her cousin Elizabeth. She decided to go after the angel told her of Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's unexpected pregnancy. That was quite a trip for this young girl. It was probably 70 miles or so, uh, probably three to five days uh, journey. But during those days, Mary apparently pondered what God was doing. For after Elizabeth greeted her, she broke into a psalm of praise, reflecting on the fact that the promise of Jesus' birth had begun God's great reversal. Now this great reversal that I'm speaking of is a, is a great principle that we find in the Bible that it's characteristic of the kingdom of God. That there will be a great reversal. Things will be upended and, and changed. The first will be the last, and the last will become the first. And the mighty will be brought down, and the humble will be exalted. And the poor will be filled with good things, and the rich will be turned away empty. It's a startling promise to hear in a world like ours that God is going to change everything and bring about this colossal reversal of, of, of our uh, situation. But we see a hint of it already here in the exchange of greeting between these two women, Mary and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is clearly the more distinguished person here. She's older than Mary. She's the wife of the very reverend priest, Zechariah, and she's six months along in her pregnancy. Mary, on the other hand, is only a teenage girl. Uh, she's from a little town in the back country. Uh, she's not yet married, and nobody really even knows she's pregnant. But when Mary greets Elizabeth, the unborn baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. Remember, that was the, remember that was the promise, that this, he would be filled with the Spirit from the womb. And Elizabeth, the dignified older saint of God, was filled with God's spirit and bursted out in, play, in praise. Blessed are you among women, Mary. And blessed is the child that you bear. Though she had no way of knowing, Mary was pregnant. As John Piper notes, that's all the confirmation Mary needs. She sees clearly a most remarkable thing about God. 
He is about to change the course of all human history. The most important three decades of all time are about to begin. And where is God? Occupying himself with two obscure, humble women. One old and barren, one young and virginal. And Mary is so moved by this vision of God, the lover of the lowly, that she breaks out in song found in verses 46 to 55. A song that has come to be known to us as the, the Magnificant. For Jesus' coming has begun this great reversal. That's what excites Mary as she considers God's ways. Now we can see that in Mary's own experience. It bears out this reversal of God's kingdom. Mary's a, 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 only a, a lowly little girl, a, a humble servant of the Lord. But God exalted her beyond measure. Elizabeth blessed her. Future generations will bless her. God reversed her destiny, exalting her as the mother of Jesus. God's great reversal began in Mary. But Mary was not just speaking of her personal experience. She praises God for his gracious plan here. Three times she notes that God exalts the lowly. His mercy extends to those who fear him. He's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things. And three times she notes that God brings down the haughty. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He brought down the rulers from their thrones. He has sent the rich away empty. God, Jesus' coming signals the beginning of the great reversal. The lowly to be lifted, the haughty to be brought down. And finally, Mary sees God's great reversal as a promise to his people, though they may be downtrodden right now. God remembered his promises to exalt Abraham and his descendants forever. Jesus' birth had begun that great reversal. Now this theme is not just an insight that Mary had. It's everywhere throughout the Bible. In the New Testament, we read it repeatedly. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. We read the same thing in other places in the New Testament. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Or in another place in James, brother, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. And the brother who is rich should take, should take a pride in his low position. Or as the Apostle Paul says, so I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Jesus' coming has begun this great kingdom reversal. Folks, this is a central theme of Advent for us. When we look around the world, when we read the newspaper or watch the news, we certainly do not see the humble exalted. They most often get crushed by the proud. We do not see the righteous prospering. 
it seems as well the one must be crooked to prosper. And those who give their lives away for Christ's sake find that there are plenty of people willing to take them and not even say thanks. And the proud and the wicked seem to be inheriting the earth, not the meek and the righteous. And the poor, well, the blessing on the poor is still hard to see, isn't it? So the realities of this world in which we live tempt us to unbelief. We can quickly despair of persevering in hope. We can easily begin to envy the wicked who seem to be doing better than the righteous. But by faith, we can see what is not obvious to all yet. By faith, we can begin to see what Mary saw. By faith, we can grasp the unseen realities which are more certain than the things we can see. By faith, we understand that what is seen is only temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so by faith, we keep, the co- keep covenant with our God. By faith, we keep hope alive. By faith, we refuse to quit. By faith, we lift up our eyes and hearts in expectation, for we know, we know that Jesus, in whom all God's promises have appeared in a body, that Jesus has begun the great kingdom reversal, which will one day be complete. It's just a matter of time. And so we celebrate Advent. We wait. We wait in hope. After the Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, I became familiar with a pastor there named Mo Leverett. He was a founder of Desire Street Ministries, a ministry in the Desire Street Project, the poorest and uh, most terrible part of uh, New Orleans, even before the hurricane. This man who has worked for years in the housing projects of New Orleans understands something about waiting for Advent. Waiting to see things change. And yet I've seldom heard anyone so filled with confidence that Jesus' coming has begun and guarantees God's great reversal. Well, Mo Leverett, in in addition to other things, is a songwriter and singer. And so I thought I'd share with you in closing a song that he wrote called Ode to Joy. It's a song celebrating God's great reversal as he sees it through his eyes in 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 the heart of a wicked and terribly poor and broken city. Let me read you the words. Freedom faltered at the fall. Wisdom on graffiti walls, anticipating the liberating call. Streets of grief and bliss collide. Time the thief is put aside. Shame no longer has a place to hide. Ode to those who've come but cannot pay. Ode to those who've stumbled in their way. Coming day, the roles will be reversed. 
Joy will find the last becoming first. Light shall overtake your shade, and to those who are afraid, nightmares into pleasant dreams will fade. No more hint or scent of rain, no lament from lingering pain. Pray the present into preordained owed to those who come but cannot pay. Owed to those who stumbled on their way. Coming days, the roles will be reversed. Joy will feed the famine and the thirst. Links to light behind the day, colors every shade of gray. Ears will hear what angels long to say. Dawn will bow to greater light, no more fear of endless night. Hope will rise on wings of ceaseless flight. Ode to those who've come but cannot pay. Ode to those who stumbled on the way. Coming day, the roles will be reversed. Joy will free the captive of the curse. on the streets where women weep. Castles are where bums will sleep. Children comprehending mysteries deep. What great lessons we have set before us this morning. God's not far off and detached from his creation. He's entered history to save us. For all God's promises, those we understand, those we don't understand, those we've forgotten all about, all God's promises have taken on flesh in Jesus. Mary's son is great. He's a son of the Most High. He's a son of David, the son of Abraham, the Messiah. He's Jesus, our Savior. And Jesus' coming has begun God's great kingdom Reversal. The lowly will be exalted. The arrogant will be brought down. Jesus' birth guarantees it. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you know how even singing the Christmas carols of Jesus' coming, singing of joy to the world, singing, Lord, of your great work, inner history, you know that even in the midst of that we can be in despair and we can feel and act as if it's none of it's really true in the real world. So Lord, I pray that in these days when we're reflecting on these things that you would cause us to feel the weight of the truth. This truth that's bigger than any of us can get our minds around that you have come into our world in human flesh and you have begun the great reversal that will lead to a new heaven and a new earth someday. Oh Lord, may these unseen realities be more real to us than the stuff we deal with every day. That we would live in light of what you are doing and what Jesus has done and will do. Awaken our hearts. Change our thinking as we reflect on these wonderful truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's sing again. Hymn number 219, I believe.
receive the blessing and then we're going to sing the doxology and um, the number is uh, misprinted in the bulletin again this week at 733 this tune that we're using for a few weeks here uh, now receive God's blessing may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of Son Jesus Christ our Lord and may the blessing of God Almighty the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. <clears throat>